as Jesus was making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the night of his betrayal and his arrest there in the garden, he offered up a prayer to his heavenly Father. And this prayer is recorded in John chapter 17. It has been called the High Priestly Prayer of our Lord. And I tell you this, brethren, it is a deep reservoir of so many rich and thrilling truths. If you read through this prayer of Jesus, it can be easily divided up into three main areas. Number one, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prayed for himself. And then as we come to verse 6 through verse 19, Jesus prayed for his apostles that he would soon send out into the world. And then number 3, beginning with verse 20 through verse 26, Jesus prayed for all who would believe in him. It is in connection with the latter part of our Lord's Prayer that we want to rivet our minds upon for the next few moments. Specifically, verses 20 through 23. Again, let's uh, read these passages together. Reading from the New King James, Jesus prayed this, I do not pray for these alone. Now, these alone in the context is referring to the apostles. But he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that is through the apostles' word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22 says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Oh, that is so powerful. And we're going to discuss it here for the next few moments. So clearly Jesus is praying for oneness and unity and fellowship on the part of those who would believe in Him. That is, those who would follow Him. What Jesus said about uh, oneness and about uh, unity can be put into two different spheres. 
And I like to call this horizontal oneness or unity or fellowship and vertical oneness or unity or fellowship. Somebody says, Brother Ben, what do you mean by that? Well, when Jesus said that they all may be one, and uh, he said that three times. He said it in verse 21. He said it in verse 22. And he said it in verse 23, that they all may be one. So he is referring to those who would believe in him, those who would follow him. That is that fellowship and that oneness that should characterize each and every one of us who are here today who are Christians. But he also talked about another type of oneness that he prayed for, and this is a vertical oneness. That is a unity that we can have and enjoy and share with the Father and the Son. And uh, we see that there in verse 21 where Jesus said that they also may be one in us. Now who is the us? The us is the Father and, and the Son. So Jesus prayed not only for this horizontal oneness that exists between all of us sitting here today who are Christians, those who are followers of Jesus, but He also prayed that we will be one and united with Him and the Father. Now I want us to take just a few moments here this afternoon and um, analyze this Lord's Prayer. And the first thing that we want to consider is the extremely vitally important point of what the basis and the foundation is for this unity, this oneness. And so we want to look at the divine basis for unity. Now, when I say the word basis, I'm talking about the foundation, the basis, the foundation for unity and oneness. What is it? What is the foundation for unity and oneness? What did Jesus say there in verse 20? He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those, now here it is, who will do what? Believe in me, but he didn't end there. Through their word. So the basis or the foundation of unity and oneness and fellowship is believing in Jesus, which would come through their word. That is through the apostles' word. Now we need to take just a moment and Talk about what it means to believe in Jesus. Because there is a great deal of misunderstanding about that. The Gospel of John has been called the Gospel of Belief, the Gospel of Faith. And the word believe is used very frequently throughout the Gospel of John, is it not? Now, many have the idea that it means believe only or faith alone, as we hear propagated in much of our religious world today. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, if we go back in this prayer of our Lord here, just go back to verse 6 for a moment, and we're going to look at a 
couple of verses in this regard that I think will help us understand what it means to believe in Jesus and that these things cannot be separated. So here's what we mean. Look at verse 6 where Jesus prayed this. He said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now he's talking about his apostles that were given to him. They were yours, you gave them to me. Now listen to this. And they have kept your word. What did Jesus say the apostles did? Kept the word of God. Now if you come down to uh, verse uh, 8, he says, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. So what did the apostles receive? They received the words of God. Let me ask you this question. Do you think a person can possibly believe in Jesus as they ought without receiving and keeping the word of God? That would be an impossibility. You will recall what Jesus said in John 12, verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. What's going to judge us? The words of Christ. Therefore, we must keep and receive those words since we're going to be judged by them. You are familiar with what Hebrews 5 and verse 9 says, that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey Him. Who is Jesus going to save? Those who obey Him. The implication is this, Jesus will not save those who do not obey Him. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It is inclusive of obedience. As a matter of fact, the word believe is very often used in the Scriptures as a summary word, as a comprehensive verb that stands for everything that we must do to be in a right relationship with the Lord. And so therefore it would include repentance. It would include being immersed in water. It would include confession and living faithfully. So Jesus prayed this, that we believe in Him, that we submit to His will, that we obey Him, but He said this would come about through their word. That is through the Apostles' word, which obviously means through what the Apostles taught. You think about the book of Acts. And this is seen throughout the entirety of the book of Acts, which is the execution and the carrying out of the commission that Jesus gave to His apostles. And then the rest of the New Testament on top of that. The word of the apostles. Even after people came to believe in Jesus, and even after... They came to obey Jesus. 
they still continued in the apostles' word. We know this from Acts 2 and verse 42. Remember on the day of Pentecost where some 3,000 obeyed the gospel? And in Acts 2 verse 42 it says, And they continued steadfastly, remember what it says, in the apostles' doctrine. That's the apostles' word. That is what the apostles taught. You know, it's interesting, we read in Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20, where the Apostle Paul said that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. It's also interesting to know that Paul himself often referred to the gospel that he preached as my gospel. You recognize that terminology? Such as in Romans 2, verse 16, Romans 16, 25, and then uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And so he called the gospel that he preached my gospel. Now, when he said my gospel, does that mean that the gospel originated with him? No, it does not mean that. The gospel did not originate with Paul, but he simply meant that it was that gospel that he preached. And this is made clear in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where he said that the gospel which was preached by me is not after man. He said, I did not receive it by man, neither was I taught it, but he said, it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. You know, we often talk about the parts of the Bible, the New Testament, that are in red letters. Now, I know why that was done to show when Jesus was, say, was saying something or had said something during His personal ministry. These are the words of Jesus. Let me tell you, friends, really, you can extend those red letters throughout the entirety of the New Testament because it's all the will of Christ. So when Jesus said that uh, people would believe in Him through the Apostles' Word, that is the Word of God. It is that which the apostles preached, by which people came to believe in Jesus and obey Jesus. So that's the foundation for this unity. Now, if you notice the very first word that begins verse 21, what is it? That. Now, whenever you see the word that, you know that a purpose is about to be given. So the word that expresses aim or purpose. So believing in Jesus through the apostles' word would be for the purpose of bringing about oneness and unity and fellowship. Now you've got to connect those things. Again, what did Jesus say? That they would believe in Him, believe in Me, through their Word. Why? That or in order that they all may be one. So the Apostles' Word 
the Word of God produces belief in Jesus, which in turn brings about oneness and unity and fellowship. And so what you have here, ladies and gentlemen, is a unity of belief. We all believe the same things. Now the implication of what Jesus said is this. And this is important. Don't, don't miss the implication. There can be no oneness... There can be no unity until and unless one believes in Jesus through the Word of God, through the Apostle's Word. It cannot happen. Now, somebody says, Brother Ben, you know, I look out here in the religious world, and I see people who are united, and they are in fellowship, and they are one. Well, I don't deny that. But let me ask you this question. Is it a God-approved unity? Is it a God-approved oneness? Is it a God-approved fellowship? If it's not based upon the Apostles' Word, the Word of God, then it is a unity that is displeasing to the Lord. So get this in your mind. Apostles' Word, or the Word of God, equals unity and oneness of belief. But on the other hand, no Apostles' Word, that is, no Word of God, equals no unity of belief and oneness. Romans 10, verse 17, what does it say? So then faith comes by hearing... But it doesn't end there. Hearing what? And hearing by the Word of God. That's the foundation. That's what Jesus prayed for. Again, let it sink into your heart and mind. Believe in me. How? Through the Apostles' Word. Why? That they all may be one. Now, the word that is used a second time here in verse 21. Now, again, notice what Jesus said. First of all, He said that they all may be one. He said, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. We're going to get to that part here in just a moment, but I want you to skip over that for the time being. We're going to come back to it. But then notice the second time that the word that is used. That they also, the word also means in addition to something else, that they also may be one in us. So what did Jesus pray for? All right, now get this. Jesus prayed that we would believe in Him through the Apostles' Word, through the Word of God. Why? That we all may be one, number one. And number two, that we may be one in the Father and the Son. So there, there are two realms of oneness that Jesus actually prayed for here. That, that horizontal unity and oneness that we can all share in, and that vertical oneness and unity and fellowship that we can have with the Father and the Son. And just as our unity, just as our oneness is based upon and has as its foundation the Word of God, so it is with that vertical unity and fellowship and oneness. So let me ask it like this. 
Can we be united with the Father and the Son? Can, be, can we be one? Can we have fellowship with the Father and the Son if the basis of that is not the Word of God? We cannot. Again, verse 22 there says at the end of the verse that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, it says there, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Perfect in one. That word perfect carries the idea of complete, a complete unity, a complete oneness that we can have with the Father and the Son. And by extension, we can include the Holy Spirit. There are other verses that speak about our oneness and our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So what are we talking about? We're talking about being one, being united with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, would it be a perfect oneness? Would it be a complete unity if... You know, we were united with the Father, but we were not with the Son. Well, no, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? We can have that perfect unity, that perfect fellowship, that perfect oneness, that completeness to our unity with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me ask some very practical questions in, in light of what we uh, hear today in our religious world. Does it sound like Jesus is teaching this very popular idea of unity in diversity? You have any idea what I'm, I'm talking about here? I want you to think about this. Perhaps you've heard about this before. You know, unity in diversity. Now, if you look up the word unity in a dictionary, and then you look up the word diversity or diverse in a dictionary, you will soon discover they are opposites. They offset each other. So the expression unity in diversity is really like an oxymoron. <laughs> it kind of contradicts itself. Now I know, you know, I, I get we all have our different opinions and judgments and likes and dislikes. But what people do, they will apply this this contradictory concept of unity and diversity to matters of doctrine and matters of faith. Brethren, it cannot be done biblically. If it can, then what Jesus prayed for is absolutely meaningless. It means nothing. What did He say? You believe in Me. How? Through their Word. That's the basis. That's the foundation. Why, Jesus, why do we need to believe in you through the Apostles' Word, the Word of God, so that you can all be one, and that you can be one in us? And so you take away the foundation, you take away the basis, which is the Word of God, and what kind of unity do you have? Now, you might have unity and oneness, but it's not God-approved, and it will not get you to heaven. Turn over to 2 John. Hold your place there at John chapter 17 because we're going to come back to it. And turn over to 2 John. And uh, we want to look at a couple of passages here in 2 John. Verses 9 through 11. 
2 John is just a one-chapter book. And so verses 9 through 11, listen to what uh, the divine record says here. Listen to what John says here, beginning with verse 9. Again, 2 John, uh, verse 9, if you can get there. I want you to look at this. So turn there in your Bible, or you can see it there on the screen. Verse 9 says, Whoever transgresses, other translations may say something different, goes onward, goes on ahead, and does not abide in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ. Now just listen to this. Does not have who? God. He who abides in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. Well, that's a whole lot like what Jesus prayed for back in John chapter 17. You believe in me through the Apostles' Word, the Word of God. Why? So that you can be one with us. What did John say right here? We have to abide in the doctrine of the teaching of Christ to have both the Father and the Son. What happens if we transgress that doctrine, that teaching? What happens when we do not abide in that teaching? What does the verse say? You do not have God. So what is the foundation here? What, what is the basis for being in fellowship and having that relationship, that unity with the Godhead? What's the foundation? The Word of God. But he's not finished. Listen to what he says in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, that is the doctrine of Christ, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Here's the reason in verse 11. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Do you know what it is when someone does not abide in the teaching and the doctrine of Christ? That is called evil. Evil deeds. So when you deviate from the teachings of Christ, when you go against the teachings of our Lord, John said that is evil deeds. Evil. And so this unity and this uh, fellowship, this oneness that Jesus prayed for is built upon the Word of God. You take away the Word of God, you take away that foundation, you take away that basis, and what do you have? You may have unity, you may have oneness, you may have fellowship, but it's man-made. I brought some books with me today, four as a matter of fact. This book right here is called The Discipline of the Methodist Church. And I've read through some of this. And it says, among other things, it says that uh, faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. That's what it says. Now, if uh, 
Which, by the way, contradicts what the Bible teaches in James chapter 2 and so many other places. That we're not justified or saved by faith only, faith alone. The Methodist discipline says we are. The Word of God says we're not. Now, let me ask you a question. Can people be united upon the Methodist discipline? Well, yeah, there's a Methodist church. They believe that doctrine. They're one. They're united. Let me ask you a question. Is it a God-approved unity? Is it God-approved oneness? Will it save their soul? Now, we're not saying these things to be ugly or unkind, but to simply point out the differences between what men have said and what the Word of God has said. Now, I have another book here. It's called the Hiscott's Standard Baptist Manual. I know pretty much every single Baptist church, at least their preachers and theologians, relied upon this. I don't know to what extent it is still today because there have been so many changes in the Baptist denomination. But this book here teaches that baptism is uh, not essential to salvation, but it is essential to get into the Baptist church. So you have to be baptized to get into the Baptist church, but you don't have to be baptized to get into heaven. That's what this book teaches. I have another book here called The uh, New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. This is a translation that is peculiar to the Watchtower organization known as Jehovah's Witnesses. They are the only ones who use this translation. They translated it themselves, and it is full of error in so many particulars. One of which, the main one, is that they repeatedly deny the uh, deity of Jesus Christ. I actually missed a few places in here where it, it actually does teach the deity of Christ, so it contradicts itself. So we have the New World Translation. And then we have the uh, Book of Mormon, which also contradicts the Bible in many places, in many particulars. So we have four different books here. Methodist, Baptist, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon. Will this ever bring about the unity and the oneness that Jesus prayed for? Never. It'll never happen. This only brings about division. And isn't that exactly what we see in our religious world today? Division. What did Jesus pray for? Here's the foundation. Don't lose sight of the foundation. Believing in Jesus, obeying Jesus through the Apostle's Word, the Word of God. Then and only then can we have true God-approved unity and oneness. Not only with one another, but we cannot possibly be in fellowship and be one with the Godhead without the Word of God. So, what does this say about the um, idea that, you know, 
we can have, now whatever the cost, whatever it takes, we can be united. Is that what Jesus prayed for? No. I submit for your consideration today that if uh, everyone truly followed what Jesus prayed for about oneness and unity, do you know what would happen? Denominationalism would disappear from off the face of the earth. So that's the divine basis for unity. But number two, let's look at the divine blueprint for unity. The divine blueprint. Now what's a blueprint? It's a pattern that you follow, right? It's, it's an example that you follow. Now, if you go back to verse 21, again, where Jesus said that they all may be one, but then he says this, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, that little word as is a comparison uh, word, and it signifies the kind of oneness and unity that Jesus prayed for. And so this unity that He prayed for would be like, it would parallel the unity that exists between Him and His Father. Now let that sink in just for a moment. You know, on the surface, on the surface, this may sound like an impossibility. I mean, how can we possibly be one like the Father and the Son are one? Now, certainly there are things that exist between the Father and the Son that we cannot possibly duplicate and be one in. Go back to verse 5 here of John chapter 17. Go back to verse 5 and, and just consider what uh, Jesus said there uh, to His Father in this prayer. Verse 5, He said this, And now, O Father, glorify me, together, now just notice that terminology. He says, O Father, glorify me together, think of unity and oneness there, with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That is deep. Now when Jesus came to earth, he divested himself of that glory, as Philippians 2 talks about. He, he came in the form of a man, and he took upon himself a different role, that being a servant. A servant to the will of the Father. But before that, even before the world was, even before this universe was created, there was a glory that the Father and the Son shared together in. They were one in. They were united in. Now, obviously, we can't duplicate that today. I mean, we're not God. We're not deity. So when Jesus said there in verse 21, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, when, when He prayed this, he must have had something in mind that his followers duplicate and can duplicate in their own unity and in, the, in their own oneness. And um, once we examine some other passages, there is no doubt that Jesus had in mind 
the oneness between himself and the Father that embraced the unity of teaching, unity of belief, unity of purpose, unity of will. Actually, right here in this uh, prayer, if you go back to uh, verse 6, look at verses 6 through 8. Let's go through several verses here in this prayer. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. What did Jesus give to his apostles? The word of God. That same word of God that the Father had given to the Son. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Drop down to uh, verse number 14. Notice what Jesus said here. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Come down to verse 17. You know this verse. Verse 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, often we stop right there, but let's uh, continue to read because it's important, especially what we're talking about here. Verse 18 says this, As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Notice verse 19 now. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Isn't it interesting how Jesus is repeatedly talking about the Word of God coming from the Father, and that He has taken this same Word, and He has shared it with His apostles. The Word is the truth. The truth is the Word. So when Jesus prayed uh, that we all be one as He and the Father are one, you begin to get an idea that He's talking about this unity of belief, this unity of teaching, unity of will, unity of purpose. Go back to John chapter 14. Let's look at some other verses on this that uh, hopefully will make it even, even clearer. In John chapter 14, beginning with verse 9, um, you know before that in verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and um, verse 7, let's just begin with verse 7, where Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know Him and have seen Him. And then Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Now listen to how Jesus responds to this. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now listen to what he says next. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, 
but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Take the Father and you take the Son. Were they united in will or not? You better believe they were. Jesus did the will of the Father in everything. Nothing was left undone. Let me state it practically. It would be unconscionable to believe the Father teaching one thing and Jesus teaching the exact opposite or something totally different. I mean, think about it. The Father says, you must be baptized in order to be saved and go to heaven. And Jesus says, no, baptism is not, is not essential to salvation. <laughs> well, we know better than that. That's just downright silly, isn't it? But yet, that's the type of unity that many people in our religious world would ask us to have. If you want to believe that, that's fine. We want to believe something different, even contradictory to what you believe. We can still all be united and be one and be in fellowship. You cannot do that, folks, and be faithful to the Word of God. That's just the way it is. It's an impossibility. And I tell you this, if we compromise in that area, we will lose our soul. That is why there cannot be any unity, any oneness, any fellowship with those who deviate from the doctrine of Christ. None. Now, we need to apply that to some in the church who believe they can thumb their nose in the face of God and be one and united and have fellowship with those who do not abide in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many congregations that still have the name Church of Christ on their sign. I wish they would leave Christ out of it. Because it is like spitting in His face and spitting on the prayer that He prayed. the very blueprint, the very pattern of Christian unity is the unity of teaching, the unity of purpose, the unity of will, the unity of work, and the unity of belief that exists between the Father and the Son. How powerful is that? And how serious is that? We better take it to heart. One final point I want us to make, number three, and the lesson will be yours. Just very briefly, the divine blessings of unity. The divine blessings of unity. So we've looked at the divine basis for unity. What is that? The Word of God. The divine blueprint for unity. What is that? As you, Father, are in me and I in you. What are the divine blessings of unity? What did Jesus say here in verse 21? Go back to John 17. There in the latter part of verse 21. He said that the world 
may believe that you sent me. That the world may believe you have sent me. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And here it is again. And that the world may know that you have sent me. But then he adds this. I love this. And have loved them as you have loved me. That, that's amazing to think that we can have the same love from the Father that He gives to the Son. As you have loved me. Whew. True unity that is based upon the Word of God, do you know what it has? It has attracting power. That doesn't mean everybody's going to come to the Lord, but it has attracting power. So if unity attracts, then pray tell, what does division do? Here's why so many people don't want to get involved in religion at all. This right here. Which is exactly what the devil wants. But I tell you this, the world ought to be able to uh, see the unity that exists here in this congregation. And they ought to be attracted to that. And they ought to be able to see that we are united upon the Word of God. And we're not going to compromise that. I came across a quote from one author, I, I just have to share this. It is it's powerful. Very simple, but it's very powerful. He said that every deviation in doctrine, every deviation in life, every deviation in practice from the Word only mars and disrupts our oneness and hinders the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. Isn't that right? You think about one of the greatest hindrances, one of the greatest stumbling blocks to the proclamation and acceptance of the gospel is the religious division that plagues our world. There is nothing more that the devil would like than to create a rift in our unity here based upon the Word of God. And I tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, all he needs is a little pinhole in the dam. And, and if that pinhole is not plugged, and the waters of division and, and discord just keep eroding away and eroding away and eroding away of that unity until the dam bursts asunder. You know what I'm talking about, right? I've seen it all too often. I know Brother Kendall has as well. It is an ugly spectacle to behold. That's what the devil wants. And so I'm reminded of the words of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. If you are not a Christian here today, I say lovingly and kindly, but firmly, you are not one with the Lord. You're not in fellowship with Him. You can change that here this afternoon. If you understand what you need to do, you need to act upon that.
with the Word of God as your foundation, you see, you can come to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And you can repent of your sins. Where do you learn that? Where the Word of God. And if you're willing to confess faith in Jesus as the Son of God, where do you learn that? Through the Word of God. And you learn through the Word of God that you must be immersed in water to have the remission and the forgiveness of your past sins and to become a member of the church of Jesus Christ, Acts 2, verse 47. How do we learn that information? Is it just a feeling that's going to come to us in the night? Or a better felt than told experience? Or I wouldn't trade what I feel in my heart for a stack of Bibles that reached all the way to heaven. What did Jesus pray for? What is the foundation? Here it is. That's the only way you can come to believe and obey Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's why Jesus said, you've got to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's how we learn it. Christianity is a taught system. We have to learn it. No exceptions. Maybe you did that in the past. Maybe you've obeyed the gospel, but yet you've, you've severed your relationship and your fellowship with, and your unity with God. What, what would cause that? S-I-N, sin. Your sins and your iniquities have separated you from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says. You can make that right here, right now. What must you do? Do you know what you need to do to make things right? You learn it through the Word, the foundation. You must repent, and you must confess. And if you'll do that sincerely, if you do that genuinely, we have the promise from the Lord Himself, from God Himself, that He will forgive you, and He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 in verse 9. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, why not respond to it right now as together we stand and as we sing?